You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to yet another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. In this episode, I want to talk a bit about my work in Genesis. In particular, I'm going to talk about the garden story, the garden narrative, which is, well, scholars will argue, but Genesis 2, 5 to the end of chapter 3. And I might touch upon that. And what it means to work in God's garden. I'm particularly, obviously, concerned coming from, well, working in academia, attempting a, gra- a graduate degree in academia. I work in academia in another field, in meteorology, but attempting to do academic theology properly and coming from a faith tradition that doesn't want to be sloppy about the way in which you use scripture, to try and get beyond proof texting and try and get away from the kind of games that people play or the preferencing that goes on without doing some hard work. So if you're a Christian in the Australian scene or you work or read um, academic work in Hebrew Bible and eco-theology, you might be familiar with the name Norm Harbel. And Norm has a book he wrote a few years ago uh, entitled An Inconvenient Text. And in that, he plays off Genesis 1, 26-28, which is the making of human beings um, in God's image and the imagery of subduing creation, which I set, um, and I think I'm following Ellen Davis a practical theologian in that sense, and setting that in an agricultural sense, and it's ultimately it's tying too to the religious life of Israel, and straight off the bat I've just used anachronistic language there, as if we should split activities like agriculture and religious festivals and religious faith, and again even using the word religion, it's probably highly problematic for people in particular fields, but you get what I'm driving at, that once you understand that then maybe you can be a bit gentler about the text and I know and many people have pointed out that that text has been used to allow people to abuse the natural world to abuse the creation to justify all sorts of utilitarian approaches approaches that remove the agency of the non-human that ignore their desires and wishes and and status that has been uh, imparted just as we have a, a status that's been imparted by uh, by God. But normal will turn, and lots of people do, to Genesis 2.15, for example, which is, talks about the creation of the man, the Adam, as I will, will call him, or them. Uh, it gets a bit complicated. Um, but the Adam is created and put into the garden to... And the English translations will will vary you can say to tend and to keep 
or tendon to guard. The words in the Hebrew are abad, which can mean agricultural work, and shamar, which can mean guard or keep, as one might keep the Sabbath. And they can have some other implications, which I'll tease out in a short little while. But the idea that you need to play these texts off, I, I guess that's what theologians do. It's what Christians do. But we can do a little bit better. We do a bit better by saying, as I just said, well, that passage in Genesis 1 has a context in the rest of the chapter. Likewise, Genesis 2.15 has a context in the rest of the chapter. And I want to tease that apart a bit. Next little while. Uh, scholar Nicholas White has commented that the, the garden story of Genesis 2 and 3 is, quote, one of the foundation documents of Western culture. There are images of the snake and ideas of the fall and thinking about human nature and so on. It may very well be dismissed entirely these days by some, but it has been very influential in Christian culture, in Jewish and in Muslim thought. And I'm no expert in the, the latter, obviously. Um, as I might say, uh, and not in feigned humility, I might add to, um, not an expert in any area, but maybe a go. But what's often been projected onto the text is rather foreign to the original text itself. That includes what Paul has to say, but Paul says it with good reason. Nonetheless, let's dig in a little bit. So what I want to say uh, in, in brief in the next few minutes is that Eden represents the temple sanctuary in Jerusalem. So this isn't some paradisical prelapsarian past. Um, there's uh, an alliteration for you. Let me say it again because I'm impressed with it because I wrote it. <laughs> Paradisic prelapsarian past. You know, uh, a paradise on earth where people didn't do any work and life was easy before the fall sometime in the mythical past or people put it in the historical past and insist upon, you know, a young earth and an original couple and from whom all the rest of the world uh, was produced, despite the fact that once you get to Genesis 4, who's Cain worried about? Anyway, you get the picture. And so the ejection from the garden represents exile. So Adam, the Adam, I'll keep putting the proper noun, uh, uh, the, um, the uh, definite article in front of the, the proper noun Adam, the Adam, is the sacral king. So that's a king with a priestly role to play, which is common in the ancient Near East. One who rules over the soil and carries out cultic duties in the garden. So the ejection is, is exile. But there's a sense, and we probably won't get to this now, but you see this in the story of um, Cain and Abel and all the way to Noah, a continuing sense in which there's an ongoing vocation of the soil which is related directly to um, tied intimately with relationship with Yahweh that is with the Lord uh, I won't get on in this program but this and this is kind of one of the guts or the the spin-offs or maybe where the rubber hits the road to, to keep using cliches the similarities between the garden story and Leviticus 26 which is, uh, as one of my supervisors coined, the Edenization of Canaan. And I, I might just leave that hanging for this episode because you can't just stay in Eden because we don't live in Eden. Uh, in what sense are we getting back to Eden? Well, you can point to Revelation 20 and 21. That's also something for another time. So let's have a poke and I'm going to try and 
skip over the Hebrew. So the first thing that's worth noting is what's known as the Toledot formula. Uh, that's a, a word in Hebrew which is often translated generations of. And you see this, um, there's a whole debate about where the garden story starts and, and you might seem think that's a bit finicky but the point is is that you've got Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 and I think I've said before, or in fact I know I have, that this is a story about God uh, subduing the forces of chaos to set up a world in which agriculture is possible, in which all the animals can feed themselves, uh, in which creation is a sacred space or a, um, in a protological sense, to use a fancy word, which is simply to say that in the unfolding of the priestly story in Genesis, this is realized in the building of the tabernacle, but it's prefigured in the idea that God... Um, subdues the forces of chaos and then rests afterwards and when you, you look at ancient near eastern parallels a god always has a temple built at this point and takes up residence and we see that um, kind of waved in our face that human beings are made in the image of god so we are uh, idols not to be bone idol that is yeah another bad pun i, I apologize but and then the creation of sacred time which is uh, represented in the sabbath but here uh, we have a different story again. It's about the garden and about what's called the fall, probably um, not always helpfully so. And there's a join in between the two. And I won't go into the, the, the details of the Hebrew text and why it makes most sense to be a join, but it, it's a, a narrator's, uh, sorry, an editor's addition to tie the two stories together to say, here's something a bit different, talking about what we've, we've spoken about before, what we've read about before, but it's, it's a bit different. Now Genesis 2.4 reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. In the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, and then on it goes into Genesis 2.5. So here you've got that phrase, the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then there's a temporal clause. In the day that Yahweh God, so we're, we're jumping from just God being used in the first account to Yahweh God, the covenant name, made the earth and heavens and you'll notice straight off that heavens and earth is reversed now and I take that to be because now's the focus not on if you like cosmic history the creation of the three-tiered cosmology of earth below and then the the deep the waters below that and then the dome of heaven above that that solid firmament but now we're speaking specifically about the earth family and, and this is where we then get into the words in the Hebrew that really tease out the fact that we are one family with the earth and we share a finitude and a creatureliness with non-humans. Anyway, but the, the com direct comparison is with Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day God made Adam in the likeness of God, he made him. And so you can, you can see straight away the comparison. So you've got uh, the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then this temple phrase, in the day that God, in the day that Yahweh God. So there's very strong parallels. It's the same kind of thing as being said, that now we're moving from the family story uh, of, um, in one case you've got the family story of Adam, and the other it's the family story of the earth, of which human beings are a part, the Adam. Uh, and so you can go into... You know, tedious detail about these sorts of things and you know in light of the similarities you can ask whether or not you can adopt 
what I've called a procreative interpretation of this generations in Genesis 2.4. So is the earth a progenitor of what follows, including humans? And care, obviously, uh, insofar as we don't impute any ideas of, um, when I say progenitor, care with the phrase Mother Earth and the way in which that might be used and interpreted, not walking away from that, but just exercise a bit of care. So it's a bit different between uh, the generations of Adam, well, Adam knows Eve and children occur. Um, God shapes creation, the earth creates it and sets it going, and lo and behold, humans appear. So there's, you can see there's two different takes uh, on the, the whole idea of the origins of human beings. And in particular, Genesis 2 and 3 is a really anthropomorphic account where God is like the potter uh, forming a vessel. So Genesis 2.5 marks the beginning of the story and it really sets up a series of, of wants. There's a phrase, when not yet, um, you know, in the beginning before. There's, there's different ways of translating it, but the whole idea is that there's a problem that's been set up. So there's, before there was, um, and I might try and jump here, find a, uh, where's my Bible in all of this mess? rather than trying to read Hebrew at you. I certainly don't have a good grasp on it. But, yet, yeah, getting there. And just as an aside, wondering how many of you read biblical languages or you speak a second language, I think it's important. It, it certainly expands the mind and it challenges our preconceptions by getting us to think in different ways. So Genesis 2.5 from the NRSV, When no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field did yet sprung up. For, why was this the case? The Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. Now, the plant of the field is likely uh, wild plants, and the herb of the field is cultivated plants. So you get this problem straight away. There's no rain, and so there's no wild plants, and there's no human being, uh, the Adam, to um, till the ground, the Adamar. And so straight away there's a pun uh, happening or an alliteration um, in the Hebrew. And there's a further one when you realize that Dam, from which we get Adam or Adamar, means red, like blood. And hence this, this terra rossa, this um, volcanic red soil that's being discussed from which human beings are taken. Now there's debate in the translations as you go on. And I don't mean to... You know, set in people's minds a sense of uncertainty, uh, but sometimes there's the speculation. We've got a, good, a lot of good English translations, and you can toss this around. A lot of good scholarship, but the NRSV says, "But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground." And you should probably puzzle at that straight away because what does it say? It says, "The Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth." And I think there's evidence, and I've not dug into this aspect in rabbinic literature but also in parallel passages where there's a, um, an intertextual relationship that really this is cloud, or in some translations you read mist, rising on the earth. And so what this is saying then, really to strengthen the relationship between the human and the earth, is that there's no wild plants because there's no rain, and there's no cultivated plants because there's no human, and God causes it to rain. And then you read, um, 
that waters the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the, sorry, formed the Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Adam became a living being. So what you see then is that rain provides the conditions for the wild vegetation and then rain wets the ground so that God the potter might sculpt out of the the dust of the earth a, a human figure the Adam which is the solution to the other problem so the same divine provision it blesses both to use a um, a dualism that I, I shouldn't entertain but you'll get the picture when I, I say it that God provides the rain for both nature and culture and so it's seamless it's a, it's a con it's continuous there's not really that dualism even though I've used dualistic categories you get what I'm driving at right the rain is a solution to a twin problem and we'll talk more about that in the second half of the program Well, welcome back to the program. I'm, I'm wondering, can you hear the rain in the back? It was it was louder a bit earlier on. Kind of uh, wonderfully ironic, given I've been talking about the value of rain in the context of this. And um, now we return to the garden. One of the things that's um, worth pointing out, as I said earlier, that the problem, the problem in this text is there was no one to till the ground, no one to care for the soil and indeed of course we read that the human being the human one was made from the dust of the ground so the the Hebrew word afar a bit later on that the garden that's created the trees are brought out of the ground not out of the dust of the ground but out of the ground and then later on still when the beasts of the field and the birds of the air are brought to the, the Adam to name, they too are created out of the ground. So this commonality of origin of the, from the Ha-Adama is that we share a created nature, a finite nature. A, a, we come from the same humus. We are humans from the humus, and all other creatures come from that same soil. But there's something distinctive. It's this phrase, afar, which I'll return to later. Now, of course, it's interesting, if you think about it, that in Genesis 2.5, it says there was no one to till the ground. And then in Genesis 3.24, the other side of the human misdecision, sorry, 3.23, the Lord God sent him forth, that's the Adam, from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So it seems on the surface that the very reason for which human beings were created is fulfilled after they ate the fruit and stuffed things up. So what about the garden? What's the significance of the garden? This is this a, like um, an earthly paradise? Is a distraction from uh, the stated nature of human beings being created? Well, you need to think about where this is. And 
as I said earlier, I think this is um, Garden of Eden is in, is, is um, Jerusalem, the land of Canaan. So one of the clues is in the name Eden, which is associated with Hebrew words that mean luxury. Now there's the text with parallels uh, in Assyrian and Aramaic, which has a verbal form, who enriches and gives abundance. And it's a series of epithets about the god Hadad, uh, or Hadad, who is described as a water controller of heaven and earth who rains down plenty and water controller of all rivers. So what this is saying then is that Eden is a well-watered land and if you look at um, Lot's appraisal of the Jordan Valley in Genesis 13.10, there's the phrase like the Garden of Yahweh. So there's this association with a garden. But there's some very um, more pointed and deliberate kind of echoes that point to the fact that what's on show here is not simply Jerusalem per se, but the sanctuary, the temple. The garden was entered in from the east. I mean, if why put the cherubim at the east of the garden unless that was the sole entrance? There wouldn't be very good guards. Um, likewise, um, and it doesn't matter whether the cherubim were there before the quote-unquote fall or not, but they certainly, remember I said Genesis 2.15, there's two verbs, uh, to keep uh, and to guard, uh, sorry, and to, to tend or till and to guard, and it's the same word here. So it's almost like, well, the, the, the seraphim are put here now, sorry, the cherubim are put here because human beings have stuffed up and they haven't protected the garden. I mean, after all, what was the serpent doing there? But the, uh, the entrance to the tent of meeting in the wilderness was to the east. We read about that in Numbers 3, as was the entrance to the temple in Jerusalem, which you read about in Ezekiel 8. It's also significant that in Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God leaving the temple, the cherubim departs from the east gate. This whole idea of cherubim, these winged creatures, they also feature as decorations in Solomon's temple in the inner sanctuary. Uh, that's 1 Kings 6, and decorate the walls and the doors. And of course, famously, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you would have seen what one person's conception of what that looks like. There's also this theme, too, of um, God walking. Now, you read in, in Genesis 3 that God walks about the garden. And the particular form of the verb, this is also used in association with the tabernacle, which is carried by the people. You read about that in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, and also the presence among the people in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 23. So the tabernacle was said to be the dwelling place of God, the, the sanctuary, um, and this uh, word that's translated as walking to and fro, which God does in Genesis 3, it also appears in these places. There's also the theme of trees, uh, where there's both literal and thematic associations of trees with worship in the ancient Near East and in the Bible as well. The tree of life is, of course, central in the garden, representing the fullness of life. And that's pretty much what underlies the sanctuary and the sacrificial law. It's, it's granting life. It's life for life, if you will. So a sacrifice is made so that human beings don't have to give uh, their life in payment for 
for trespasses against the law. The life of a creature is in its blood, and this blood was not to be consumed, but was to be used to make atonement and hence to save life. Uh, Psalm 24 contains creation language and refers to the Temple Mount as a holy place where blessing is received. So the sacrificial law and the Psalms retain this idea of the value of, of life to it in its fullness, and that's represented by the tree of life, which is most probably uh, represented by the lampstand in the temple, a, a stylized tree which you read about in Exodus 25. And that same chapter, of course, mentions the cherubim as well, so it's probably a, you know, highly likely uh, an association. Note also, too, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is pleasing to the sight and pleasing to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. And these are all concepts that are applied to the law, to the Torah. For example, Psalm 19, that's the one that's shorter than Psalm 119, if you're going to pick a psalm to read about the law, says that the law of Yahweh enlightens the eyes and makes wise the simple. And of course, where are the tablets of the law kept? The Ten Commandments. They're kept in the ark, together with the, the book of the law, um, beside it in the Holy of Holies, that is the center of the sanctuary. So you can see there's a real tying up of the tree language of life of blessing of wisdom um, all together with the temple itself and that this is all picking up on language used of eden well the adam is is also pictured as a king and it, it as i noted before the idea of uh, the dust of the earth is not just an affirmation that um the Adam is at one with the soil, as Walter Brueggemann somewhat um, dismissively deals with, but the idea of kingship as well. They're not exclusive, I don't think. And so what Brueggemann finds is some text where this is clear. So Genesis 2.7, Yahweh God, or Lord God, formed the Adam out of the dust of the ground, and later on in 2.15 to tend and guard the Garden of Eden. In 1 Kings uh, 16, uh, and verse 2 we read I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people I lifted you out of the dust same word as in Genesis 2 7 and made you ruler over my people in 1 Samuel and also in a passage that almost exactly the same in the Hebrew in Psalm 113 it reads we, he raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to set them among princes. And I think we're meant to, to read that being set among princes means being uh, have an equal status. And so Brueggemann wants to say then that the language of dust is used very deliberately to say that the Adam is set in the sanctuary-like um, space that is Eden as a king. And that's a king with... Um, a, um, a sacral, a priestly type status. And you see in the ancient world an association often of kings with gardens, uh, which were symbols of their power and their wisdom uh, and symbols of their ability to rule. And so that's worth thinking about at the moment. If we put ourselves in that picture and think about ourselves as um, Adams and Eves, then that makes us royalty. And that's not a pretension that's a real calling it, it's a calling for you know a, 
a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's uh, one Peter picking up on Old Testament or Hebrew Bible language. But just as that's painted in rich pictures of, of caring, tending a garden, just as it's associated very closely with our identity with the soil and our need to look after it, well, that says that there's a continuity between what Adam, the Adam was meant to be and Paul's language of Jesus as the new Adam and those made in Christ's image, Jesus' image, as fulfilling the same kind of role. So that's a far richer picture, I think, than just picking out a, a Genesis 2.15 and in a really kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, pithy or, or ill thought out manner uh, just to, to pick up on that uh, language uh, garden, language, gardens and kings the book of Esther describes the Persian king exiting from a feast into the palace garden Esther 7-7 Nebuchadnezzar of course built his hanging gardens of Babylon as a display of royal management so this whole idea that maybe you could argue uh, the atoms created to tend the soil, you see that the other side of quote-unquote the fall, and what's the garden all about? Well, the garden's a precise expression of that, and the fact that the atom can still tend the soil outside of the garden says that there's still, even in exile, even, uh, and we can use exile from the experience of Israel, but we can start to think about, well, are we being exiled from the earth by our mismanagement, the revenge of Gaia, you know, Mother Earth turning her face against us, if you want to use those kind of metaphors? Is there still a sense in which we can still know God? Well, Christians would you know, give an affirmative amen, but picking up on this, these rich metaphors and the close relationship between, if you will, creation care or land care and worship of God, that there's still a task to be engaged in even a world that's turning against us because of what we've done. And uh, I've talked before about, uh, I believe, about um, Genesis 1 and its relationship to Leviticus 18 and chapter 26 and the, earth, the land of Israel vomiting the people out and the real sense in which that's being fulfilled now. The whole idea of the Anthropocene, of climate change and other things is that um, we have defiled the earth and now it looks like it's vomit vomiting us out but there's still yet the possibility of this divine vocation of earth care as a an expression of our holiness and I know I'm just picking up on ideas and, and not going through them in, in great detail we don't want to hammer on the Hebrew at this time of night or whenever it is you listen but nonetheless the idea that to keep uh, to guard is, is a thoughtful exercise of looking after and in particular and this is something I can pick up on another time it's it's quite clear when you look at um, the role of the Levites in caring for the tabernacle and its furnishings um, in Numbers uh, 18 for example um, you, they shall attend to your needs and the needs of the tabernacle they shall attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle and you shall attend to the needs of the sanctuary and the needs of the altar and you've got the same underlying language used about uh, the needs of the people the needs of the Levites to serve and the needs of the, the various bits and pieces 
of the tabernacle, the actual equipment, and it's all using the word shamar, which is used in Genesis 2 to talk about um, keeping or guarding the creation. And you can see a, a real lining up, I think. And what it's saying, and I'll, I'll finish here, is that this idea of, of keeping the tabernacle, uh, keeping people's needs, keeping the garden, are all saying the same thing. That the creation itself is made as a sanctuary to acknowledge God, to worship God in being itself, just as human beings, when they're most naturally themselves, give praise and worship to God and acknowledge God as creator and as holy, um, finds its parallel in the tabernacle and vice versa. So I really think there's a strong sense, and maybe I'll return to this with greater clarity another time, that uh, creation care really is an expression, a direct expression of holiness. Not just an accident, not just a byproduct, so that when you talk about being holy, it's not just about your sexual ethics, where we, you know, people fall down all the time, or um, of the language you use, whether it's foul or holy or whatever. You know, the, the different ways in which the church typically conceives of our holiness are all right and true and proper. But the Bible itself in the garden story and how it's picked up in Leviticus and in Numbers and other places really does express that caring for the creation is also an expression of holiness in allowing the creation to be itself, uh, fulfill its its own um, role to ascribe holiness to God in being itself, in flourishing. Well, that's enough raving for now. Um, the half hour passes really quickly and there's just so many ideas embedded in this. But read Genesis 2-3 with new eyes and really think about the royal status and the, the vocation to care for the soil, our unity with it, and yet our distinctiveness as well. It, we, human beings are not to be in a, a biblical view collapsed merely into other creatures where to lift other creatures up there's, there's, there's a profound difference between the two I think in acknowledging the agency and the value and worth of the non-human should not be to diminish our own because the Bible is pretty consistent I think in the um, describing something unique for us but you go back to Genesis 2 and 3, it's unique for us so that we might serve other than ourselves, whether or not it's other human beings or the soil or non-human creatures, all ultimately is the expression of a serving God. That'll do. Thank you for listening, and once more, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.